Today, I am recording on February 22nd, 2023, and I have Darren Gobb with me, um, and we're going to be discussing the Defend the Guard Act, and I'm going to have him introduce himself here shortly because he has quite a an extensive resume. But um, for people who have been listening to this podcast, you'll know that I've had Representative Deming on the show before. He was my civics teacher back in high school. He taught me all I know about the Constitution, um, gave me the basic uh, foundation about my for my conservative and libertarian values. Um, and now he is a representative for House District 55, and he is introduced to the Defend the Guard Act into the Montana legislature. Um, the hearing for this bill is next Monday in the House Energy Technology and Federal Relations Committee. Um, part of the reason I haven't been recording as often is because I've been preparing in uh, my off time for this uh, committee hearing and, and getting people kind of mobilized to show up. And I've been working with Representative Deming, um, getting updates from him when I can. Uh, so yeah, I'll be there on Monday and I'll also, I'll also include a link in the description for people who want to send uh, messages into the committee if, if you're supportive of this bill. But I figured we would do a quick episode with Darren today, uh, running through why he supports this bill. He, he submitted a written testimony that has now been used as an article uh, nationwide in many publications. So um, I want to bring him in and kind of use that article as an outline for an interview here. So uh, Darren, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hey, Liam. That's good to join you tonight. Yeah. Well, why don't you just introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah. Uh, uh, name's Darren Gobb. I'm retired military out here in Helena, Montana, and uh, retired with the intention of not doing a whole lot other than being retired, and that didn't last very long. So uh, either way, uh, most of my lifetime has been involved in, uh, in the military, so 1991 to 2019, and that's everything from uh, an enlisted infantry, infantry private all the way up to uh, battalion and brigade commander in the Army. So um, lots of things buried in there, but uh, I think in my experience and the things I've done in the background in my past with the military uh, leads me to be able to talk to this particular bill well. And uh, now I also run a, uh, a nationwide grassroots coalition, uh, a global veterans group, and a variety of other things that uh, have got me in the arena of, uh, of fighting basically for this country and for constitutional governance. Now, you begin your written testimony that has been published now nationwide with your record, and, and you have been deployed many times. I'm wondering if you mm -hmm. can just go a little bit uh, into detail about your um, military history and and uh, share with the audience a little bit as to why, you know, you can speak to this. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I started out enlisted in the infantry, like I said, but I ended up with the Army's Honor Guard in Washington, D.C., and then uh, was at the White House, the Pentagon, and various other high-security places around D.C., and got to see a lot of things that someone in with what I was doing probably would never get to see. Uh, left that uh, that job and with the intention of going into business in the in the private sector, but I uh, got called into the military again and in back into service as an officer in uh, flew Blackhawks uh, helicopters for the remainder of my officer career. But I um, during that time, you do some jobs that are kind of generalist um, in nature, so strategy development. Um, dealing with a lot of national strategic issues, 
um, at, at a variety of levels, building campaign plans for um, regions of the world, countries, sometimes continents, all, all those kinds of things. And it was uh, in those generalist type of positions, which means I wasn't doing aviation duties or flying helicopters. I was doing all these other things that uh, led me to become well-versed at uh, everything in the military, basically from secretary of defense down. And uh, it, it's weird, but, and I didn't plan on any of that happening, but it did. So, and now it's paying off in current job and current efforts that I've been involved in. Now, I, I do want to dive deeper into what the Defend the Guard Act is here shortly, but you are affiliated with a couple of organizations that you're planning um, to test a, testify on the behalf of mm -hmm. uh, you include Montanans for Limited Government and Restore Liberty. Um, can you just yeah. tell the audience what those organizations are so they can look into them? Sure. And we'll, we'll add in another one on the end of that now too, which is nice. So Restore Liberty is my own organization that I co-founded with a, a retired Brigadier General in the Air Force who's in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And uh, we work local government mostly, you know, judges, sheriffs, and school boards, things like that. Uh, we believe that's where you got to really rebuild this country is from the bottom up, not the top down. So that's Restore Liberty. And then um, the second one, Montana's for Limited Government, is just an organization I work with. And just due to the distance and time of Montana for traveling, uh, I communicate with them regularly. And, and, uh, and if they want me to testify on behalf of a bill in person, then I'll do so. Uh, sometimes I'll ask if I see something ahead of time and say, hey, would you like me to use, you know, talk on behalf of your organization in support of this bill as well. Uh, so that's two that those are major grassroots efforts across the state of Montana. And um, with my organization, it's also across the country, but we focus on Montana stuff. And then uh, the third one now is the Montana Freedom Caucus, which uh, I am a kind of a background staff for the uh, currently 17 members of the, of the Montana Freedom Caucus, which is split between the Senate and the House for membership. So that's three very good and, so, and very good organizations, I guess you could say, that uh, are backing this bill and had no reservations in doing so. Yeah, it was really great to hear that they put it as a priority bill. They, they voted, I think, unanimously yeah. to make it a priority bill. Um, so let's let's dive into it. Um, why don't you just explain what the Defend the Guard Act is and why you got behind it? And. I would love to. And frankly, this is one of the easiest bills to get behind of yeah, the and to I guess it's difficult to describe to people sometimes how easy it is because it's one of those bills that people try to, you know, distract people in a number of ways. In this case, uh, the Defend the Guard bill basically says very simply that Congress is vested with the sole power to declare war. The president executes the war when Congress has declared it. And that's it. Uh, the Defend the Guard bill is reasserting that constitutional requirement rather than what has happened, which is the Congress has delegated much of those powers, in fact, most of those powers, to the executive branch to let them operate almost as, the, as they see fit. Uh, there's a War Powers Act that allows you know, the president to operate on certain timelines for deploying troops to give him some rapid response. But that has been abused. That rapid response turned into we're going to start operations within 90 days and then we're going to end them 20 years later. Uh, this bill says that a governor needs to stand between the executive branch of the government and its own state National Guard and not deploy that National Guard overseas to combat without 
and they, they must have a congressional declaration of war. Without that, then the National Guard shouldn't go anywhere. Now, I think you mentioned it briefly here, but you go into the background um, and, and you discuss the War Powers Resolution and how this is mm -hmm. unconstitutional on its face. Can you can you just dive a little bit deeper into the background of the current uh, legal approach to how we actually get into war and, and how it's kind <laughs> of been corrupted? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And granted, this is going back to 1973 or so. And then the intent of the War Powers Resolution was to give the president a certain amount of time in order to let him react quickly to the world situation. You know, the world is speeding up, I guess you could say, and how fast we can move from in locations around the globe. That is a fact that is true. And that part of it is well intended. But the problem is the timeline in total from when the when the president can say go to when they have to be back is over 90 days and in 90 days in today's world you can have this country in a war that we have no way out of except for winning which basically gives carte blanche to the executive branch to start something and then force us to have to finish it and not have congress involved at all the and the congress's strings to this is basically saying at, at a certain in certain periods of time through that 92 days uh, we have the option, basically, of saying we're not going to fund this war. Now, I have a friend who is in the Guard um, who says that he knows people who just returned from Syria uh, mm -hmm. back in November. Um, and part of this is because of the AUMFs. Um, and you touched on this briefly in your in your testimony. Can you just explain how the AUMFs have been abused to essentially justify um military adventures that were not the intended purpose behind these mm -hmm. AUMFs. And, and that's a large part of it, basically. But an authorization for use of military force is not a declaration of war. It just says, hey, President, we're going to authorize you to mil use military force, and then we're going to wash our hands of it, and we're going to uh, sit over here and fund it if we feel like, if we feel so inclined. And, and as we've seen over the last, uh, well, frankly, 30 years and longer, uh, how do you not fund military adventures when your soldiers are overseas? That's that's how they, they couch the argument. So uh, an authorization for use of military force is not a declaration of war. It is used basically as a way for Congress to shirk its responsibility, to put all the responsibility on the executive branch and the president, and to allow them essentially to make the decision to go to war, to send people to war, to execute the war, and then only come to Congress and say, okay, I need money. And then what happens? Well, you know, 20 years later in Afghanistan, you're leaving that country. 20 years later uh, in Iraq, um, you know, we left earlier than that, of course. But uh, these wars turn from actual conflicts that are somewhat clearly defined into, into nation building and, you know, massive expenses. Uh, and so the authorization of the use of military force is basically not even a legal reality. It's it's just a uh, it's a word salad. It's an excuse. We're going to we're going to pawn this all off on the president and we're going to sit over here and do nothing. Now, you you address a few um, possible arguments against this bill in your testimony, and I do want to keep this podcast as short as we can. So uh, if you may or if or if you will, will you just uh, maybe pick one of the most um, important, I think, contentions that this bill might face and and try to address it? Well, uh, if I may, and I'll address one of them very quickly, I would say there's two of them. One of them is going to be adherence to the Constitution. And the whole the whole point of this entire bill is trying to get back into adherence with the Constitution. 
which says Congress declares war, and that's it. Multiple excuses will fall out of that, and lawyers will try to use and parse words to make excuses behind it. But I would say the primary driver is going to be the funding. Uh, in most things in government, you know, it's it's always follow the money or the threat of money or the you know, promise of or threat of removal of the same. And I find that to be an empty threat because, frankly, it has nothing to do with this bill. The bill is just go with the Constitution. And that's it. And that's why this is so simple. Do it in accordance with the Constitution. Some are going to say, well, the Supremacy Clause says that uh, the federal law overrides everything. Well, that's true when it adheres to the Constitution. So let's adhere to the Constitution first. And the Supremacy Clause is, is no longer a valid argument in this because you've already covered that. Um, but everybody's going to constantly come back to resources, money, equipment, all those kinds of things. None of it is relevant to this argument. Yeah, one of the things that I've been disappointed to hear is that um, the supremacy clause is referenced quite frequently when people try to shut down bills here in, in the Montana legislature. And, um, you know, uh, they'll often omit the in, per, in pursuance uh, thereof uh, clause that is included right before it, it says that federal law is supreme. And what that in pursuance thereof is referencing is is the enumerated powers um that the constitution delegates to the federal government and quite clearly um, the federal government and the executive branch has uh, kind of stepped out of its bounds. So I think it is the state's responsibility to um, really check the federal government and put it in its place. Oh, I agree. I mean, let's, let's simply look at this at uh, the last time the Congress declared war was world war two. And how many decades have we been in conflict since then, in undeclared wars? Yeah, this is just not how this nation is supposed to work. We've, our founding fathers even warned us about getting embroiled in foreign conflicts. Um, and, you know, if a foreign conflict truly does have strategic necessity for us to get involved in, then I think the Congress would not be, you know, too challenged to vote in support of that and, and make that declaration. And we're living in a day and age where if something happened and Congress had to declare war and people are worried about the timing and the president needs more time. Well, good grief. We've been voting for a number of years now based on this pandemic and everything like that. Virtually, you can call the Congress together virtually uh, in no time at all and vote on this and debate on it the way the way we're supposed to. The nation accepts risk through the people, not through the executive person. And I don't care who the president is and what party they are, it's irrelevant. Uh, yeah, and I, <laughs> I I like that you you have included quotes here from the founders. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll link to your written testimony in the description so people can read it from the founders themselves, from Madison, from Alexander Hamilton. Um, you have a few quotes from Madison. But I, I do want to address one final thing that, that I'm hearing is that uh, when people take the oath of office, they swear to um, protect the president and to follow the president's orders. Um, it's my interpretation that they they swear to uphold and defend the Constitution. Um, what would you say to those people who say that they also swear to um, follow the president's orders? 
the first thing in the oath is that they will up, they will they will uh, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. If you want to look at a supremacy clause, that's actually a supremacy clause. Your first and foremost duty is to guard and defend that Constitution, regardless of who that enemy may be. And if you can't do that, the rest of it's irrelevant. In fact, if you've got, it does say in the oath that you will obey the officers appointed over you and the, the orders of the excuse me the orders of the officers appointed over you and the president and things like that. But if you can't meet the constitutional requirement, none of those orders are valid in the first place. Well, we're reaching. We're over fifteen minutes now, and I want to keep this brief. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to address before we go? Yeah, and uh, I think what you're going to find with anybody who is going to be an opponent to a defend the guard style bill, uh, what they're going to do is try to create a bunch of noise from you know national security issues to base realignment and closure threats to removing uh, threats to remove equipment to threats to remove um, funding to impacts on individuals and local economies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the higher priority here and the higher principle here is the Constitution very clearly says something. And it has never been changed in reality. I mean, it's been changed, unfortunately, the wrong way but through execution. But the reality is that that higher principle says adhere to the Constitution and that's it. Ignore all that other noise. It's not germane to the bill in the first place. The states are the primary political entity in this country. Through the Tenth Amendment, it is very clear as well. Uh, it is up to the states to stand between the federal government and the people of the countries or the people of their states and say, no, this is not constitutional. You can't do this. And the governors with courage will do that. They'll stand up. And this is a perfect example of one way to do that. And frankly, the most important decision any country can make is to send their sons and daughters into a conflict. And we have seen governors stand up very recently to the federal government with um, the overreach we saw during the pandemic. And uh, our own governor, he just wrote a letter to the ATF saying that they would he would not enforce their new pistol brace rule mm -hmm. because a law that was passed last session. So there is clearly a precedent here where governors have the the power and at, at times they they are actually willing to step in and um, mm -hmm. check the federal government. So I would just encourage the legislators in this state to see those examples in our in our history. You know, um, looking back to Governor Schweitzer when he uh, blocked the real IDs and the federal government threatened to pull funding for our airports and he called their bluff. So there mm -hmm. are histories, there is history here in Montana of governors doing that. Um, so absolutely, it's it's in line with everything you've said, and and this is a practical thing that can be done. Um, but I appreciate your time so much uh, for for you taking the time to be here. I would just encourage everyone who's interested in this bill. I'll have a link in the description to the committee if you want to message them to uh, support this bill. I'll be there on Monday testifying alongside Darren. Um, but yeah, uh, for anyone who is listening, please subscribe, share this video, give it a like, um, blast it around. We really want this to pass the committee, um, pass through the floor, and then hopefully we'll, we'll be doing this again when it gets on the Senate side. Um, this upcoming Friday, I have a podcast with Ethan Holmes, who I've had on the show before, and we'll be discussing the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war and the Ukraine invasion, um, which is another element 
as to why the Defend the Guard is so important. Our, our president continues to escalate in the war in Ukraine, and there's really no off ramp here. And if we are going to get to a point where they are going to ask for troops to be sent to Ukraine, and if Biden does follow through, we cannot have him unilaterally make that decision and send our troops to Ukraine. We, we must have Congress go on record and, and uh, vote for this war. Um, but thank you so much for listening and, and uh, share this podcast around.